about sila. And Temple and I will share the talk together. And this is the, we began um, our retreat with sila, taking the precepts, creating refuges. And it's really a beautiful way of bringing our practice into our life. This is why we're practicing, so we can speak and act and live our lives from a place of wisdom. And we've been cultivating mindfulness and wise effort and concentration so that we can come to wise understanding, make wise intentions, and then take that out into our lives. The Buddha had some wonderful advice to his son Rahula when Rahula was about seven years old. And he said to Rahula, there are three times you should consider your speech and your actions, before, during, and after. (laughs) When you're about to say or do something, consider, will this be of benefit to me and to everyone else? If it isn't going to, don't do it. If you think it is, continue. When you're in the middle of speaking or acting, is it being beneficial to me and everyone else? If it isn't, stop. And if it is, continue. And then, after, afterwards, look back and look at the impact of what happened. Was it beneficial to me and to everyone else? If it was, then you can feel appreciative of that. And, and happy. If it wasn't, then learn from that and make the intention to do differently. He didn't say, Rahula, you're a bad boy, if you've made a mistake. He simply said, learn from that, how to be different the next time. So I'd like to talk about wise speech, how to bring skillfulness to our speech. And the Buddha talked about Five ways to speak wisely. In truth, at the right time, affectionately, beneficially, and then with a mind and heart of goodwill. And then there were four kinds of verbal conduct that aren't in line with the Dharma. Lying, especially intentionally. Speaking maliciously, that's causing division by our speech harshly, and then gossiping. And the word for this is called idle chatter, is sampapalapa. And that's really how it sounds. A <laughs> little bit like the turkeys, as you... <laughs> We're turkeying. So really, it's about cultivating the truth and refraining from anything that isn't in accord with the truth. And the Buddha placed tremendous importance on this particular precept. And in fact, it's the one of the precepts that is a whole path factor of the Eightfold Path, speaking what's, what's true, not causing harm through speech. And the Buddha said, without commitment to truth, honesty, sincerity, authenticity, there is no evil one would not do. And Bhikkhu Bodhi um, puts it beautifully, I think. He said, wise speech is more than an ethical principle. Devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. So in other words, telling the truth is aligning ourselves with reality in a really profound way. It's really helping us move towards authenticity, where we're really expressing what's what's real, what's true for us, with our inner speech as well as our outer speech. And you've seen this week the challenge it is to have skillful and truthful inner speech from the stories we tell ourselves. Are they really true? Are they kind? Are they beneficial? And it can be useful to explore what's underneath when we are having difficulty telling the truth. 
And of course, it's those three kilesas again, greed, aversion, delusion. Sometimes it's for manipulation why we, we don't tell the truth. We want to get something, to be right, to be seen, to have approval in a certain way, to actually get something. I love this story from my own family. When my mother was a little girl, um, in, they got, she got the bus with my grandmother. And in those days, there was a conductor on the bus. And if you were three or under, you, were f- you went for free. And so the conductor comes along and says to my mother, How old are you, little girl? And my mother says, I'm three, but I'm four when I get off the bus. <laughs> And <laughs> that's what we grow up doing, <laughs> is stretching the truth to benefit ourselves in so many different ways that it becomes kind of acceptable. We could have many stories about that. And we also sometimes don't tell the truth out of protection because we're afraid that we'll be hurt if we say what's true for ourselves, or maybe to protect others. And there are many stories of that in difficult times where we might not tell the truth to protect someone so they won't be harmed. And the Buddha, Buddha sometimes resorted to silence. And there were certain questions that he didn't answer if he thought it would cause harm. Or he might have a counter-question. And um, I had an example of this in my medical practice where Um, A woman came to me and she wanted to know if her daughter, who was also my patient, was taking the birth control pill. And I didn't want to tell her. And so I asked a counter question. Sounds like you're really worried about your daughter. And then we talked about that. And I was able to not have to be put in a position of either telling a truth that might cause harm or telling a lie. So sometimes we can do that. And sometimes we need to say things that are disagreeable um, and that are hard to tell. And And the Buddha was also very skillful about that. If the words were true, beneficial, and timely, the Buddha would speak them, regardless of whether they were disagreeable and unwelcome or agreeable and welcome. In other words, he didn't speak just to please people if he felt this was what was true as long as these two criteria, beneficial and kind and timely, were fulfilled. So the timing is crucial too. And and it was said that Tathagata, the Buddha, knows the times to use such speech. Why? Because he has compassion for beings. So he didn't want to withhold what was true. This is um, a piece from um, one of the uh, community Dharma leaders, Shahara Godfrey. She says, when someone says, speak your truth, they want you to be direct, honest, and truthful. And then, as the person being asked to do that, you have to determine if this is the best way to say this. And is this the best time to say it? And how do I say it in a way that holds my intention as I would like it to be received? So those are the things that we consider when we want to speak what's true. And that's helpful. Sometimes it's delusion that causes us to um, not to say what's not true. We, we can exaggerate things, and we all do this. There were hundreds of so-and-so. So-and-so was furious when maybe he was mildly irritated. You know, we, we stretch and exaggerate. Sometimes it's to entertain. Sometimes it's to catastrophize. We all have different particular patterns that we do. And it's useful to notice um, what it is, and to really question, is this really true? There was um, a lovely story I heard from someone on a a long retreat. And in this particular retreat, there would be a practice leader for the whole day who would sit at the front. And what had happened for her was 
the person sitting next to her who'd been sitting next to her for over a week suddenly wasn't there. And the first sit, she thought, oh, maybe they're not feeling well and they're lying. Maybe he's lying down. And the second sit, he still wasn't there. And then she began to think, maybe it's something I've done. And she said, I was really started to imagine all these things that I might have done that she didn't want to sit next to me anymore. And then the third sit, she was beginning to feel really very distressed. And then finally, about an hour or so later, when the bell rang, she looked up, and there he was, sitting at the front. And she said, I'd gone through this whole story and and scenario of what was going on. And so we do that. And it can be so helpful when we're caught to think, is this story I'm telling myself really true? Or is it illusion? Is it true? Is it useful? And is it kind? And we can really question our assumptions and our projections um, because those leads can lead to harm. Sometimes we make assumptions about categories of people. Um, there's been a referendum where I live recently and I noticed myself about to, in, with a group of people, all the people who voted so-and-so must be really stupid. <laughs> You know, and making an assumption about all the reasons they might have voted that way. And we can do it for political reasons or ethnic or social or gender or any kind of difference that we have with people. We can make assumptions about how we think they are and speak from that place, not realizing the impact that we have. And so it's take the time to question, what am I assuming And is that really true? And then another form of harmful speech is malicious, divisive speech. And that is where we, the Buddha instructed not to repeat elsewhere what one has heard in order to to divide these people from those. And instead, to speak in a way that brings people together, that reunites those divided promotes friendship and harmony. And you can see that in the public realm, there's so much divisive speech. On the internet, with cyberbullying and all the things that we know of, the ways speech can be used to cause harm. And then harsh speech is, harsh speech often comes when we're really angry or hurt or upset and we speak harshly. And sometimes it can be critical or sarcastic or demeaning. And there was a study that showed the most common factor for predicting which marriages ended in separation was those where the couples were sarcastic with each other or belittling. They'd interviewed all these people. That was the most common predicting factor. And we know that children who are treated with harshness and judgment and belittled really internalize that and grow up with that inner speech that is um, so painful that they carry forward. And that can be a societal thing too. Certain groups of people grow up believing they're no good because they've heard that message over and over again. So when there's aversion underlying harsh speech, it can be really helpful to be mindful and to notice that in ourselves so that it doesn't come out when we're feeling aversive. It doesn't come out in our speech and our actions. And we can pause. Temple was talking the other night. Pause before pressing send. Pause before we open our mouths. And so the antidotes are patience and kindness. When we're in a charged situation, if we or someone are angry, Can we stay with the intention and this resolve to only speak what's kind and what's useful? Having the intention to not be reactive, to not to make the situation worse, to breathe and to pause, and to say to ourselves, is this conversation going in a useful direction? I... um, had a, a one, a, one of my patients some years ago was a man who had been through many different doctors and had finally come to me. And I was feeling really good about myself that we had a working relationship. You know, I'm so great. 
And then one day the Kehi came in, and he was very angry and furious. He had a lot of pain and difficulty, and was really sort of projecting it, and very angry with me. And I said something really sharp back. And I could feel that in my body. And then the anger started to come back, and I thought, whoa, is this going in a useful direction? I didn't say that out loud. And I said, I need to leave the room. And I walked out of the room, I went into another office, and I went, I'm losing it. (laughs) And, you know, (sighs) my intention to not cause further harm. And so I was able to go back in and then say, you know, I'm sorry, we both lost it. Can we start over? And he was so relieved. He didn't want to have you know, hurt between either. He was just speaking from pain. And then I was speaking from my fear. And so it was being able to take a break and then come back and begin again. And we can always do that. Take a break, begin again. Remember the advice to Rahula. We're in the middle and it's not going very well. Can we stop and start again? And then the next category is idle speech, gossip, sampapalapa. And a lot of you've noticed inner speech on retreat is like that. It's that kind of yada, yada, yada speech, the story of me. It can be for entertainment. And sometimes having um, speech about, it's, it's not that we're not to, we can't talk about um, things that are happening in our daily lives and have social conversation, but it's more to notice the impact of it on ourselves and on others. I was first aware of it very, very young. When I, so as soon as I could open my mouth to speak, speech poured out. There was a lot of sampapalapa with the story of me pouring out. And my younger sister, who's just a year younger than me, her brain works differently. And it was very hard for her, and she barely spoke. And then one day, so I'm told, she just said in a very loud voice, Adrian, will you shut up? (laughs) (laughs) And so it sort of, I got it. (laughs) I was unaware of the impact. And it's been a theme for me because that is a tendency. As a physician, I noticed, oh, I have a tendency to finish people's sentences (laughs) because I think I know what they're going to say next and I want to move on. So pause, listen, (laughs) allow, notice, to notice when I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say next when someone else is still speaking. And so each of us has tendencies. Um, and we can notice that. So it's very helpful to really pay attention to that um, flood of speech that comes out. And even to pay attention to it right now <laughs> and be aware of that energy that leads to that. Sometimes it's gossip that is what, what we do. And that's a difficult thing. A lot of our speech, we're talking about other people. And if you make an intention not to speak about anyone who isn't present, you'll find how hard that is. And so just to notice that, and then to notice, why am I talking? Sylvia Borstein has a lovely acronym, W-A-I-T, WAIT. Why am I talking? (laughs) And it's really helpful (laughs) just to pause and wait. Because wise speech also includes listening, the quality that we pay attention. It's not just about our external speech, it's quieting the inner speech. And when there's that um, lessening of inner static, when there's not so much inner speech, there's space to really sense into what we're feeling and what's happening with another. It's easier to pick up signals from ourselves and from each other when there's less static internally. Then we get to see the impact of how our speech is being received. And as you know, people who with, with Asperger's autism 
spectrum disorders, it's very difficult for them to pick up those cues. They have to work really hard to sense that because it doesn't come naturally. And so tuning into the body, quiet, pausing, being embodied as we're all learning to do, and then notice what's happening, paying attention to the internal dialogue, learning to track our thoughts and feelings enables us to connect and both speak and listen so that there can be connection and dialogue with others. So why speech is giving us a guide and a framework? It's not about putting a restraint on self-expression. In fact, it's enabling us to be more authentic. It's in giving us an opportunity to really say what we want to say in an authentic way, to know that we may make mistakes, and to be able to keep trying again, simply setting the intention. I want to say what's kind, what's true, what's useful, and as best I can at the right time. And also to notice the impact my speech is having on others. So in our lives and when you go out onto retreat, it can be helpful to really notice as you start speaking, and you've already had a short experience of that just now, and seeing what happens to the energy in the body when you start to speak. Seeing how easy words come so quickly before we've had a chance. They're out (laughs) before we can have a chance to sometimes control them. So being embodied is so helpful. Some of us, it's our intention is to be quick to react and, and speak harshly, and we need to work on kind speech. Others of us, we're too nice out of fear for hurting others or from wanting approval, and we need to work on truthfulness. Others of us, we speak up too often out of eagerness, out of um, the extroverts amongst us can, can, you know, we're the one who's always speaks up in a group or a crowd. And our ch- challenge is to pause and give others a chance to speak. Some of us, it's working on timing. We might say, ah, oh, I should have waited, and it's timing. And then other, others of us working on our desire to be helpful. We want to say things to smooth things over or to fix it or whatever it is when people don't want to be fixed. And so each of us has our challenge with speech. And as you move out into life, you can see, what is it for me? What part of wise speech would I like to explore for myself? And always um, noticing how it is inside. Is, what I, is the story I'm telling myself true, useful, kind? It's so helpful. So, I'd like to turn it over to Temple. And thank you for your wise listening. Thanks, Adrian. As Sally was saying last night, the training that we're um, undertaking here is called the Eightfold Path. And we're talking tonight about part of the Eightfold Path, three of those folds, um, which sometimes is called the sila or the moral action part. Adrian just talked about speech. And one thing to uh, one thing that took me a while to tune into about this particular tradition is that um, the most powerful thing I had done was silent retreat, and then I w- was sort of thrown back out into the world. And what I tried to do is re is to repeat the practices I had learned on retreat out in the world. So walking slowly feeling my breath. I could do that to some degree, but it sort of broke down. The the conditions weren't as supportive. And so I thought, well, to really do the path like I want to, I have to go back on retreat. And there are a number of people um, 
who become sort of retreat focused because they feel like that's when they're really making headway. And over time, what I learned is that retreat plays a part of our waking up process. And for some people, they go on very long retreats. Um, But most of us are living in the world. And so what happens is that the, the precepts we took in the beginning play a supportive role while we're in this environment, but we're not seriously challenged, many of us, around breaking these precepts or not while we're in these conditions. And then when we go out into the ordinary world, it's, it sort of flips in a way that mindfulness plays a supportive role of our sila, of our ethical actions. But that's much more of what we can track and what we can do and what we can develop is what type of actions we undertake. The sort of the micro-awareness of all the inflections of thought and the comings and goings of emotion, you, you can track that to some degree. But much more of what you can really pay attention to are the actions you're undertaking. And so that's where, when I understood that that was an important part of the path, then I didn't have to always go on retreat. Actually, what I was doing every day was clearly a part of the path of waking up. So that's why I play such a central role and such an equal role to the intensive meditation practice. In fact, if you were to go over to Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka, where this tradition comes from, very few people will have done what you just did of spending this many days in silent mindfulness practice. Most people will spend time in a monastery, but that's a little bit more of um, a time of being out of their everyday habits, but they aren't necessarily sitting and walking like we've done. So this training actually is pretty rare. Um, What most people will do actually in their lives is uh, get teachings on um, becoming much more attuned to what beautiful actions look like and what harming actions uh, look like and raising their awareness about the many ways that they're causing harm knowingly or unknowingly and the many ways that they can cause the benefit to themselves knowingly or unknowingly, tuning into that. So that's sort of the the proportion has changed. I kind of think of it as um, two uh, music performers that play well together and sometimes they're both playing and sometimes one backs off and plays support role while the other one leads. Then the other one, they can change it back and forth and they can both come in again strong. So um, looking at our actions is a little bit more what leads in our daily life, supported by the development of mindfulness. And then when we come on retreat, it tends to go the other way because the environment that we're in, we're not making that many um, intense choices uh, that have such ethical impacts when we're just doing the sitting and walking. And as Adrian just spent some, some time on, speech is a huge part of the actions we, can, we should spend time on. It's probably the one of all of the five precepts. It's the one that can so easily cause the most harm and the most benefit. The other ones can cause pretty big harm, like uh, taking the life or harming people physically or stealing. There definitely some harm can happen. But in the flow of our daily lives, the pain we can cause through speech and then the beauty we can cause, the type of um, positive um, impact we can have when we're speaking honestly and kindly to each other. The ramifications of speech are huge. But we have these other precepts, and we, take, we took them at the beginning. They're really important. They're really good guides to pay attention to in everyday life. So they're sort of the, what we train in, to just even to develop what it's like to have this ethical attunement, to have an ethical code that you live by. And so the five precepts, if you don't know them by heart yet, um, there's uh, not causing physical harm or taking the life of any living beings. So that's one type of training. Not stealing, but also not taking what isn't offered and not misusing resources. So it may not necessarily be stealing, but you probably shouldn't be doing with those, those items uh, what you're doing. So it might not quite be called uh, stealing, but you're misusing resources or taking what isn't offered. That's the second precept. The third precept is not causing harm through sexual activity. And there's so many ways that that can happen. 
Sexuality is a very powerful force, very beautiful force, but we can get very deluded in it as well. And there's a tremendous amount of pain that gets caused either by unwanted sexual uh, interactions or by the betraying that happens when people um, betray the trust that happens when they've, when they've made vows to each other and they put trust in each other. The fourth precept, as Adrian just spent time on, is around speech. And the fifth precept about um, being careful around intoxicants is that we're working so hard to bring clarity to the mind. And with clarity, we can make choices. We can see what's happening moment by moment, make better choices. If we are starting to put in um, substances, alcohol or drugs or anything that begins to really stir us up and confuse us, then <clears throat> that doesn't lead to our betterment. That doesn't lead to our, our sobriety or seeing clearly. So alcohol can do that and some drugs can do that. But some people even go to say, if you watch a lot of violent movies, that's a type of stirring in those images and kind of setting those um, standards in your mind. And so that's, is that what you want to be putting in? And how's that affecting you? So there are these five precepts and you can take them on as trainings. As Adrian just gave some very important uh, details, you can take on the trainings of speech. You can also look at how am I causing physical harm or am I causing harm? So the question comes up often around, should you be a vegetarian? Should you be a vegan? Should you look at how you're relating to uh, your diet? And everybody is going to make a different choice on that. And the Buddha didn't say you should do this or shouldn't do that. He said, don't actually take the life of a living being. But he didn't actually lay down the rule that every, everybody who follows his training should be a vegetarian. And that leaves each one of us to actually explore that. I know as I've heightened my awareness around that, there was a time when um, I definitely didn't want to cause harm, but I grew up in a family that believed in uh, fishing and believed in um, hunting. And I participated in that in a little bit because it was sort of the climate when I was growing up. And I got to a point where um, it just wasn't worth it. Like whatever protein I was getting out of this animal, it was now dead. And that didn't make sense. So for my own, there was a point where just my own sensitivity led me to make different choices around how I was relating to the world around me. Each one of these precepts is a place we become more sensitive. It's also important to have these precepts as sort of, um, you can take some firm vows around them because chances are if you're about to break them, you might be under the spell of your own confusion. I know um, <laughs> I have a sensitivity to, uh, I, I'm a very light sleeper. And so when I sleep in the room with somebody snoring, at first it's just annoying. And then my mind starts actually going into this resentment. And it starts to actually tell a pretty convincing story that harming this person is becoming more and more of an option. <laughs> and I can actually talk myself into it. It's late at night. I'm not tracking everything so clearly, but it's just like, yeah, I think they're harming me and harming them back. If I can get them to stop snoring, and it sounds like they're choking to death anyhow, so maybe I'm actually doing them a favor. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And in that moment, I'm actually, like, started to actually create a plan. One, <laughs> one time I was in, uh, I was... I was in a hostel with my uh, brother traveling through Europe and he had some friends with him and they were snoring at night. In the middle of the night, there's like snoring and these two are going back and forth snoring <laughs> and not even in the same rhythm. I was like, ah, there's just no rest in this. So in the middle of the night, I grabbed a blanket and I gauged where they were and I threw it. And I gained another blanket until finally the snoring got muffled. <laughs> and two hours, two hours later, I was woken up and the lights were on and there was the smell of smoke. And like, the place is on fire, the place is on fire. And I actually th had thrown a blanket onto a heater and it, it, we didn't burn the place down. But <clears throat> I had talked myself into it. I'd really, I'd convinced myself. If I'd had the precept at that point, it would have said, what is this precept doing here? <laughs> it's like, it makes so much sense what I'm about to do, but... I took this vow. Why would I do that when it's so clear I get to do that? And so you have this gate, and it's just like it stops you and thinks, 
I shouldn't cross this. I took a vow. Why, did, why is it even there? It's like, oh my God, what was I even thinking? So when you have the precepts there, if you fall into a spell, your mindfulness is not as powerful as what's actually happening for you. And you're about to sail across and cause harm or sail across and steal something or get really intoxicated by your own attraction to somebody and cross some boundaries that are not helpful or even harmful. You could be very deluded, think you're being mindful, but you're actually in the sway. You're completely taken up by greed, hatred, or delusion. And so you have these precepts there and they frustrate greed, hatred, and delusion. They don't allow you to just sail across. So it's important. And that way, they. I notice that if I'm uh, developing harmful intentions and I want to act them out so I can relieve my tension, but I can't because of the precept, I then have to do my work. And it's like, why am I this angry? Well, so-and-so, really? Why am I this angry? Well, this is not how I want it. Okay, we can work with that. Why am I this angry? Well, damn it, I'm attached to this. I want things to go that way. Okay, I can actually not hurt them. I can untangle my own anger from the inside. But if that precept wasn't there, I might do something, later regret it, and then realize, oh my God, I was completely under the sway of my own anger. And that's why that harming action almost happened. In the time of the Buddha, he was, uh, he was often attended by one of his cousins named Ananda. And Ananda gets to um, travel with him a lot, so there are a lot of discourses where Ananda is asking him questions. And Ananda asked the Buddha, uh, what, O Venerable One, is the reward and the blessing of sila? And the Buddha says, freedom from remorse, Ananda. And Ananda says, and what is the blessing and of the freedom of remorse. And the Buddha says, joy, Ananda. And I've seen that to be true for myself, that there was a time where I was willing to be more kind of argumentative with people, a little bit more sneaky, kind of, there were the people I wouldn't do that with, but then there are people I would, people who, you know, I have to go back to kind of high school to like a lot of that really uh, competitive thinking but there are whole, crew, whole groups of people that I didn't have to be kind to because they weren't kind to us. They were kind of uh, my enemies. Um, but <clears throat> as we participated in that way of thinking, it perpetuated the resentments. It perpetuated this tension. And we kept having to win new, new battles with them, ways of teasing them or shaming them, and they would shame us. And it just kept us embroiled in that. As I slowed my own participation in that, there were fewer and fewer people who resented me <laughs> and fewer and fewer of my own actions that I woke up the next day and really wished I hadn't said that thing, hadn't done that thing, didn't have to apologize for my misconduct. And then there actually became freedom from remorse. So there's very little, because of my, my practice of sila is pretty good these days, they're little things and they're easy to apologize for because I'm paying attention to them and I enjoy paying attention to them. But there was a time when it was a training to take on a new standard of how to be in the world. There's also, <clears throat> so there are these five precepts and they're good ways to start training, to kind of get into the thinking of what is the uh, healthy relationship to having this ethical attunement. And they might come across it first, like sort of like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do to be good. You might start with that type of mind. I know I did. Like, well, it's not my first choice, but I guess if I'm going to be a good Buddhist. I'll got to do these things. <laughs> and then I got to see their wisdom. But I trained in these five different categories. I got to train in them. But then when it woke up was this uh, ethical sensitivity. And it began to graduate out of the five precepts. Not that I don't still think about them. I do. They're still very important. But what's heightened is actually a concern for the welfare of other people and the way that I may not be participating in their well-being. So I may not be breaking any one of these precepts, but I've heightened my my curiosity and my concern that I'm not actually causing stress for other people. So an example of this, um, there's a 
monk who's become a really beautiful scholar. And I wrote him a question a few weeks ago, and he responded immediately with a beautiful long answer, a whole article that he'd written. And I was busy at the time. I was like, wow, it's a lot bigger than I thought. It's going to take me a while to digest that. And I got busy, and I didn't respond. And then he wrote me a couple of weeks later and said, did you even get the article? And I said, oh, yeah, 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 I got, I got busy. Uh, sorry about that, sorry. He said, well, I actually was waiting the whole time for your response. And um, it'd be nice if you could even just write back, I got it, and if I'm a little busy, I'll respond to you later. Because then I don't have to wonder so much if email worked or you didn't like it. I just am spending time having to kind of wonder. I was like, oh, you're right. I'm actually going to take care of you that way. It was so beautiful of you to respond that way. It was a little bit sloppy of me not to acknowledge that I had received your response. So in that way, I'm not, it'd be hard to see which, which precept I'm breaking, but I don't want to cause him agitation. And it's actually not out of a burden, but out of a love for him, respect for him, that when we have these correspondence, and I know that's important to him, it's actually a delightful thing not to, kind of, not to cause him stress. That's sila, but it's not necessarily found in one of the precepts. But it's being concerned about the harm or the agitation or the strain that I might be causing other people. When I was younger, that would have seemed like a tremendous burden that my parents would have put on me to do the right thing. It's like, ah, oh, there's so many things I have to do right. But it's actually grown out of a heart that really, um, it's awake, it's tender, it, it cares. And as I learn how people um, like to be treated, then I can tune into that. And it was nice that he didn't actually say anything harsh to cause defensiveness, and that would have caused work on my end. But he just raised the, uh, the awareness. That's a small example of a type of exchange that um, I feel dedicated to having with him. And then I can see it working with other people. I don't personally need that, so I wasn't that tuned into it. I send people stuff, and I kind of assume they'll get back to it or not. But for him, that was important. I know for other people, that's important. And so now it's standing up as like, oh, that would be a beautiful thing. And my heart actually feels lighter. It wants to play that way. It wants to interact with people by being more ethically attuned. One part of sila is just your own personal relationship to other people, other animals, to the environment, and learning from that back and forth becoming more attuned to your environment. Another is when we start to look at how we behave collectively and seeing if there's a way that you're participating in a system that might be causing harm, where it'd be hard for any one individual action to say that was the harming action. But maybe there's a way that a system and your participation in a system is actually causing harm. One of the things that we're looking at here at Spirit Rock is some of the ways that social norms perpetuate a sense of one group receiving a lot more benefit than another group. Looking at these patterns, and again, it'd be very hard to find any one instance when a group that's receiving benefit, like say, the way men often receive a lot more benefit in a male-dominated society than the women do. Again, be, you can look at every individual man and not see it. When you look at the collective uh, system, you can see, yeah, there's something happening here. I'm going to raise my ethical concern to look at how are we behaving collectively to see if there's harm being caused. That's important and that's interesting. And that actually, the heart can grow to the place where it actually can feel the pain and doesn't want to participate in the pain anymore. When you look at how you're, how you're participating in a system, in a culture, that's causing harm. And it doesn't match up with your values. But you can't see it just by being, um, looking at your own particular participation. You have to begin to feel into a system, feel into a community, and listen to the community to hear whether, how the harm is being caused. Because sometimes it's very profound but the many little actions that go into it are very subtle. So that's another way that sila begins to um, operate in all of us, and we, be, we can create a community that is ethically attuned, and then celebrates its ethical attunement, 
that delights in treating people kindly. And that's the beauty of it. When done badly, it's just the rules of do's and don'ts. And so there's the, the, the bad relationship to sila. It just feels like a lot of rules and you can get it wrong and you shouldn't break that precept. It actually is a part of the joy of waking up is feeling into where you've been unconscious or where your community has been unconscious before and seeing if you can raise up the awareness and then watch how the harm that's been caused begins to recede. And you start to feel the healing that comes when you actually can raise consciousness in a community. Here's another quote from the Buddha. And I, I think, uh, I don't know the, quite the context, but it could easily be Ananda who asked this question. The Buddha is responding With regard to external factors, I don't envision any other single factor like friendship with admirable people as doing so much for a person in training like we are. A person in training, a person who is a friend with the admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. And so this is the Buddha saying that a lot of our work is done internally by ourselves, working on our own hearts, our own minds. But when he pointed to anything outside of yourself that is the most beneficial, he's saying it's the company of good friends, good friends that will help you, uh, inspire you into what is beautiful, that can role model for you, um, how you'd like to see actions undertaken. And also, if you have good friends where you're willing to receive their feedback and people who could say, you know, I'm, I can see you're in pain today and I have compassion for that. And I think I can see a mistake that you made. Then you get mirrored back from the right friend at the right time uh, with compassion as the motivation. A good friend um, on the path is, a, is an incredible reward we now have access in this culture more than ever to other people who have practiced what we've practiced here. So many of you are going home. This might be the first time you've come on this, uh, this style of retreat. But there is so much more available to us than there was five years ago, and definitely 10 years ago, and oh my gosh, 20 years ago, there was so little. It was just a handful of people working really hard. But now there's many, many resources available to us to support us on this path of awakening. I'll just come back to my first point. Um, As we go home, many of you might have been thinking, how do I do what I've done here home? How do I walk that slow? How do I eat that slow? How do I meditate as much as I did here or there? That all is an interesting translation of what we've done here back home. But it tends not to be what the next many months will be like. What the next many months will be like is reflecting on these values, listening to talks, reading books, talking to friends, but also looking at your actions and seeing what type of an actor are you? How do you drive? How do you speak? How do you move through the world? Are you uh, being a jerk? Are you being kind? Can you drive differently? I have uh, two little words on my dashboard. It says um, slower and um, kinder. Slower and kinder. Because without that reminder, it's very easy for me in, to be swept up into rush hour traffic and find myself getting really impatient. And then I somehow I need to get where I'm going. And I go, oh, slower, that's okay. And kinder, not like, nope, you can't get in, it's not your turn. <laughs> like, yeah, I let you in. What am I going to be? Two seconds later, that's not a problem. Slower and kinder. That's actually where our practice is very rich in the types of actions we undertake. And that's why this, this portion of the Eightfold Path um, is, 
is rich for us, both on retreat. It tends to play a little bit more of a supportive role on retreat. But definitely when we come off retreat, uh, looking at our speech, looking at our actions, looking at how we move through the world, we find that if we actually can make some inroads there, that I agree that again, our hearts and our minds become happier. We become more easily content. It's part of the training in happiness is to train with this ethical attunement. So thank you for listening tonight, both Adrian and I. It's fun to share this with her and share this with you all. Let's just take a moment and close our eyes and just sit for a moment. What is the reward and the blessing of becoming more ethically attuned? Freedom from remorse. End of freedom from remorse? Joy. May joy be the outcome of how we open our hearts to feel into our participation in the world around us in ways that we're reducing harm, in ways that we're generating um, kindness and uh, service to others. hour for walking <clears throat> and then one more time to come in for a late night sit and some chanting so enjoy your evening enjoy this last night of the silence drink it in bathe in the silence and the practice we'll see you later on tonight thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.